So hi, um, this is the second instalment from Mr. Bruce Akoya. Um, so he is a paediatric consultant surgeon at St. George's Hospital in London, and he's got a subspecialty interest in oncology surgery, working closely with the Marsden Hospital in managing children with solid tumour malignancies. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, today we're going to talk about surgical management of neuroblastomas. Thank you, Kate. Um, so starting off, our first patient is a 20-month-old girl, and she presents with a mass palpable on the right side. On the ultrasound, the mass is seen to lie above the right kidney, and it doesn't appear to be arising from it. However, the mass is large, and the kidney is being displaced downwards. What are your differentials at this point, and how are you going to work this patient up? So you give a very good description for a neuroblastoma case arising from the adrenal gland. Um, of course, there will always be a differential diagnosis for any abdominal mass. Um, it could still be a Wilms tumour arising from the kidney, or it could be um, a, a neuroectodermal tumour. It could be a lymphoma. It could be um, any other blue cell type of tumour, but you, you certainly describe what sounds like a neuroblastoma. In that situation, then, uh, if you have you already have an ultrasound scan suggesting that it's really important to involve your oncology colleagues and um, uh, make sure that the child is fit and uh, make sure the blood pressure is under control. A lot of the time, these children are hypertensive. Get routine blood tests done, renal function, full blood count, uh, liver function, etc., um, your oncology colleagues would then uh, uh, probably want you to uh, perform urinary catecholamines uh, as a means to confirming the diagnosis. Um, you may also wish to do a, an LDH, which may also be raised in neuroblastoma. Um, and then you then need to progress to cross-sectional imaging. Uh, cross-sectional imaging is important because you can then assess the impact of the tumour and other organs, see whether it is encasing important blood vessels, invading other uh, organs, for example, uh, but also to plan your tissue, plan your tissue diagnosis. You then need to go ahead to perform a biopsy of this lesion, uh, and usually you have a pretty good idea that this is a high suspicion this is a neuroblastoma at that stage. Uh, and so you need to perform biopsy. The ideal biopsy is ultrasound-guided um, true-cut biopsy using a 16 or 14 French gauge needle. It is not uh, a complete crime to perform an open biopsy in these cases. You do not upstage the tumour by performing an open biopsy if you do not have access to interventional radiology, for example. And some tumours are retroperitoneal and difficult to access uh, and so laparoscopy may be useful in on some uh, in some instances to obtain tissue diagnosis. Um, usually at the time of obtaining the biopsy, because there's a very high index of suspicion, you would proceed to insert a double lumen Hickman line at that stage. The uh, oncologist would also usually like to perform um, uh, bone marrow aspirates and trephines and uh, lumbar punctures at that stage. So 
Following that, the girl has evidence of a large suprarenal abdominal mass and it is encasing the aorta, the IVC and the SMA and it's abutting the right renal hilum. And there is raised urinary HVA and VMA. So histology comes back and it's consistent with a poorly differentiated neuroblastoma. It isn't MICN amplified. There is no segmental chromosomal aberrations and bone marrow trephines are positive and MIBG reveals an MIBG avid tumour with distal metastases in the right femur and iliac crest. And as you say, this is in keeping with a high risk neuroblastoma. So can you please explain to us the um, international neuroblastoma risk group classification system, otherwise known as the INRG, the staging system, and compare this to the INSS, which is the International Neuroblastoma Staging System. So the INSS, prior to the INSS, there were multiple staging systems from different oncology groups around the world. And in 1988, a group of um, oncologists internationally came together to try and come up with a staging system for neuroblastoma. And the INSS was, this was in 1988, and the INSS is is a surgical pathological type of staging. Um, it's a it's a post-operative staging, really, depending on the completeness of resection of the tumour and um, also the histological features uh, of the tumour as to, as to whether it is uh, completely resected or not, or whether it's resectable or not, and also significantly um, is quite dependent on local regional lymph node involvement. So the International Neuroblastoma Risk Group classification is a much more complex um, classification and groups children with neuroblastoma into various um, high, high intermediate and low risk groups depending on the the sites, the histology, the presence of uh, what we call image-defined risk factors, the um, uh, the presence of chromosomal abnormalities, um, and several other factors to place children into particular risk groups. There's a much more complex staging system than the INSS. Also, importantly, it is a pre-surgical staging system as opposed to the, um, and tries to give a prognosis at the time of presentation, as opposed to post-surgery. So you've talked about image-defined risk factors, yeah. and why are they important? So the, the um, image-defined risk group factors, as you would imagine, describe um, factors which would make surgery more difficult, but also... Um, define tumours as being classified as L1 or L2 depending on the presence of one or more of these image-defined risk factors. Examples of risk factors would be lateral tumour extension within two body compartments such as the neck and chest or infiltration of adjacent organs and structures um, or encasement of major vessels or the brachial plexus uh, or within the portohepatic or hepatoduodenal ligament. 
50% of patients with neuroblastoma are categorised as high risk and therefore follow the SIAPEN protocol and have multimodal therapy. At what time points can or does surgery fit into this treatment pathway? So the treatment for high-risk neuroblastoma um, essentially consists of um, induction chemotherapy, which is, in the UK is an 80-day therapy called rapid COJEC. Um, surgery, the, uh, the patients are then assessed for um, resectability of their tumour. Now, at that stage, ideally, they would have surgery um, at that point, resecting all the macroscopic tumour if that were possible. They would then go on to have uh, bone marrow harvest um, with a view to giving them myoablative um, chemotherapy, which is therapy that completely destroys their bone marrow, and they then have an uh, autologous uh, bone marrow transplant. So that would be the usual uh, or ideal treatment. However, sometimes after 10 day, after 80 days of chemotherapy, uh, we still feel that the image-defined risk factors are too significant in terms of having safe surgery. And then you have the option then um, of either carrying on uh, with a different form of therapy called TVD, uh, chemotherapy, or they may go on to have uh, high, have their bone marrow harvest, high-dose high chemotherapy, uh, bone marrow transplant, and then get reassessed at that stage for further surgery. If it is felt at that point, even then, that further surgery is not safe or feasible, then they, would, uh, they could go on to DVD uh, or other alternative, alternative therapies which may be available. You decide to go ahead with the surgery. What surgical approaches or approach do you offer? And could you kindly talk us through the important steps of any operation for neuroblastoma, including any key structures that you wish to identify, how you identify them, any technical tips, and including what you do for uh, hemorrhage control, including catastrophic hemorrhage control. And when you decide to stop with the neuroblastoma, because I know that can often be the hardest decision. Um, where you have tumours arising from the adrenal, very often um, they extend up into the thoracic, cap thoracic cavity, obviously covered by the diaphragm. And so for the more intrathoracic the tumours appear to be, then a thoracoabdominal incision is very useful for those sorts of tumours, splitting the diaphragm. And that often takes you down onto the, uh, the site of the tumour quite, quite well. Um, and then what I often say to my trainees is when you're operating on a neuroblastoma or any tumour for that matter, um, the first thing to do is to avoid going near the tumour because actually what is more important is to define normal anatomy. If you define normal anatomy, then what is not normal anatomy is tumour. Whereas if you go straight for the tumour, then you will come across normal anatomy when you don't want to. Um, and so uh, you would follow the usual rules of reflecting the colon as you would 
for a Wilms tumour and getting down to the retroperitoneum. Now, for a neuroblastoma, the, the generally accepted safe approach for all neuroblastoma resections is a vascular dissection. And because neuroblastoma tends to encase important blood vessels, then the key to removing neuroblastoma is to follow the anatomical um, uh, direction of the blood vessel. So you, you find normal aorta, for example, and you define um, the the famous Mr. Ed Carney used to carry out a sub-adventitial dissection, um, which uh, to a large extent is what most pediatric surgeons would do in, in various guises. But you follow the normal anatomy of the of the aorta. The inferior mesenteric artery can usually be sacrificed if you have to, but it's best not to sacrifice it. Obviously, you don't want to sacrifice renal vessels. Uh, you follow up the... So essentially, you skeletonize the arterial supply uh, and venous supply to the normal structures. Now, sometimes in order to skeletonize a vessel, you may have to bisect the tumor. That is considered completely acceptable if you have to do that. And then when, you've dis when you have clearly dissected out your normal anatomy, um, and then you can proceed to excise the tumour um, in safety. Now, if it is um, involving the renal vessels, the renal artery and vein, sometimes it's a, you need to make the decision beforehand that the that kidney is not salvageable, and it can make your dissection a lot easier if you mobilise the kidney as a whole. Um, however, in such situations where you are planning up nephrectomy at the time of surgery, uh, a lot of oncologists will prefer that you have that conversation with them so that they have two kidneys in place when they're going through the high-dose chemotherapy. So in that situation, you may wish for them to go through the high-dose chemotherapy first. In my experience, um, I found it less and less necessary to resect the kidney. If you accept that what people would call 100% um, uh, uh, macroscopic resection is probably unrealistic, whatever approach you choose to happen. But if you're aiming to achieve um, uh, above 95% macroscopic resection, then a lot of the time you can preserve the kidney. So you also ask, when do you stop? Well, that's a really important question and depends on, I suppose, your the centre you work in your level of expertise, your confidence, your philosophy about the operation. If you are a surgeon who has vast experience in hepatobiliary surgery, for example, you may feel comfortable to go ahead and dissect out tumours in the portohepatis involving the, the portal vein and the bowel ducts. I think probably most pediatric oncology surgeons would deem tumours that are invading the portohepatis unresectable. Um, but there are probably uh, surgeons who would who would deal with that. Um, so I think really in terms of where you decide to stop, you one has to seriously consider the adverse effects of surgery, such as catastrophic hemorrhage or removing organs you shouldn't be removing. Um, if you take the view that um, it is probably not possible to achieve 100% microscopic resection 
uh, whatever you do. And so given the fact that there are other adjuvant um, treatments that can be given, such as radiotherapy, chemotherapy, antibody ther therapy, MIBG therapy, there are other strings in the bow of the oncologist, and it would seem to me unreasonable to risk the life of a patient um, unnecessarily for the sake of achieving complete microscopic resection. Having said that, the aim of surgery should be to achieve greater than 95% resection. And in my view, if you do not feel that you can achieve that, or if you're definite that you, you cannot achieve um, close to 90% resection, then I think that surgery should not be embarked on in that situation. In terms of um, catastrophic hemorrhage, well, the best way to avoid the best way to treat catastrophic hemorrhage is to try and ensure that it does not happen in the first place. And the way to avoid it is meticulous dissection of the normal anatomy first. Um, and also, uh, difficult to describe verbally, but not operating beyond the point of your instruments. In other words, always have the tips of your instruments in view of you. And uh, I often say to people that the, the best way to treat catastrophic hemorrhage when it does happen, the first rule is not to panic. Um, because if you panic, you will forget to press and which is the most effective way of controlling bleeding. Simple pressure is usually enough to control if the worst bleeding. Uh, and then you take a deep breath and you can usually uh, find your the source of your bleeding and control it. Okay, we've talked about um, objective, subjective, intraoperative tumour clearance. Mm -hmm. How do you judge tumour clearance? Do you do that by eye? Do you use intraoperative photography or do you use post-operative early cross-sectional imaging? Um, obviously, intraoperatively, I do it by eye and by feel. So it is subjective, which is why I'm very pleased that uh, there is a move towards getting post-operative cross-sectional imaging, because we know by evidence that a surgeon's assessment of the degree of resection is very often overestimated. So I think because it can be quite confusing down the line what is new growth and what is old growth. So um, it is subjective to some degree, and I, I think that cross-sectional imaging as soon as possible after surgery, before you start to get post-operative inflammation and swelling, is a very good idea. So changing tact, you have a late trimester antenatal scan, and it detects a left suprabrenal mass. What is your usual postnatal management and is surgery ever indicated? So I think it's probably well, it's pretty well known that antenatal adrenal masses, um, actually quite a few of these adrenal masses turn out to be adrenal hemorrhages, which are not tumours at all, they resolve with time. Um, but um, a lot of these antenatally diagnosed adrenal masses are um, lesions that would tend to uh, either be completely benign or would have a very high tendency to regress on their own. So, um, which is why screening has been abandoned widely around the world. There have been a few large studies, notably in Quebec and Japan, which have shown that picking up a lot of these antenatal or neonatal adrenal tumours um, do not at all reduce the incidence of 
of high risk metastatic neuroblastomas um, uh, later on because you're picking up tumors which uh, would tend to have the tendency to mature or regress. So um, uh, antenatally or neonatally de um, detected adrenal tumors should be observed. They should undergo due process because actually some of them are neuroblastomas and some of them are NMIC amplified and some of them do metastasize. So they, they, they should be followed up closely, but there's no rush to surgery. Some would argue that if the lesions persist or grow beyond the age of one, that they should be removed. Um, some would advocate that if the lesions are stable, they should be left alone. The evidence is not entirely clear what is the what is the best treatment for a lot of these, but I think it's probably accepted that if the lesions persist beyond the age of one year, do not regress, uh, they should probably just be excised because usually they're quite technically easy to remove. So thank you. Another case, a male infant with a confirmed neuroblastoma and they've got evidence to the spread to the skin and the liver, but less than 10% bone marrow involvement. MIBG scan does not reveal any distant metastases. There is no evidence of MICM amplification or any chromosomal aberration. What do you think this child has and how it should be managed initially? And when or if chemotherapy or surgery is ever indicated? So you describe a patient with MS, uh, which is a as you've described, a classic type of neuroblastoma um, with the features that you've described. So typically, these are very good prognosis tumours, and classically, they have a very small adrenal primary, which usually you cannot biopsy um, anatomically. The, the features are usually quite clear-cut. You, you have the skin lesions, and you have the the liver involvement, and you have a small primary, and you and you have you may or may not have bone marrow involvement. Um, the diagnosis can be made from skin lesions, actually, if you're not, if if it is felt that histological diagnosis is essential, um, because some of them do have NMIC amplification, but that's extremely rare. Um, the treatment for these usually is entirely conservative, and ideally, if you just sit and wait and do nothing, they will regress on their own. If you have um, a rapidly enlarging liver causing abdominal compartment syndrome, then that is an indication yeah, to, to try and treat with chemotherapy. In some conditions, in some situations, the liver is so massive, despite chemotherapy and conservative measures, that it is necessary to perform a laparostomy and, um, and place the... Uh, create an abdominal patch to release the pressure whilst giving chemotherapy um, and waiting for the lesion to shrink. And then following that, obviously, the, these tumours still need to be followed up oncologically because some of them do have some adverse features and um, behave like a true uh, stage 4 neuroblastoma. The question as to whether or not the primary needs to be resected in time um, remains somewhat controversial. It's probably quite reasonable not to resect the primary because they're often extremely small, but um, 
quite a few oncologists and surgeons would opt to remove the primary. Moving on to a different patient, a patient with a posterior mediastinal mass. So quite a different neuroblastoma tumour had a mass at the apex of their right chest. And this was confirmed as a neuroblastomic tumour. What are your differentials or special characteristics that you know about thoracic neuroblastoma tumours versus the abdominal? And how does that change your workup? The workup for a thoracic neuroblastoma would be exactly the same as the workup for an abdominal neuroblastoma. You would, um, you would want to know what the histology was, and you'd want to stage it and make sure there was no intra-abdominal lesion or any other lesions of, of bone marrow. Um, a lot of these, the thoracic tumours, tend to be maturing neuroblastoma, so there's a a lot of them would tend to be ganglion neuroblastomas or uh, ganglion neuromas. Um, and some of them would present with a Horner's syndrome. What's important to bear in mind is that these tumours are usually very good prognosis tumours compared to the abdominal or pelvic neuroblastomas. So their workup would be the same. Your treatment strategy might be somewhat different. If, for example, your histology showed a ganglion neuroma, you would you could mount a reasonable case for not removing it at all in view of the morbidity and the fact that actually you you do not tend to correct the Horner syndrome by removing these tumours. If it's a ganglion neuroblastoma, um, especially if it's nodular or a neuroblastoma, then they would need to go through. Uh, they, they would need to be um, treated in the same way. A lot of the thoracic tumours can be excised primarily. So if you feel the tumour is resectable, then primary um, resection is often the preferred way to go because, in fact, there's good evidence that even if you do not achieve complete macroscopic resection, the prognosis is usually very good, nevertheless. So... On cross-sectional imaging, you have a different neuroblastoma tumour and it has evidence of intraspinal extension. How could that possibly uh, change the acute management? And at surgery, should the intraspinal component be removed? So the um, when neuroblastomas have intraspinal extension with neurological symptoms, that is considered an emergency and um, usually uh, that can be treated either with surgical decompression by the neurosurgeons or with steroid therapy or with radiotherapy uh, but usually it is felt that immediate surgical decompression is indicated in that situation so that's that's the acute situation more commonly the tumor can be seen invading the intervertebral and the question is whether to, um, following, assuming this is a neuroblastoma, following whatever aggression you're going to get with chemotherapy at the time of surgery, whether to go chasing the tumour into the spine or into the foramina. And generally, um, most surgeons would not, would, would resect the tumour as far as the intervertebral foramina. For, um, however, there are 
some centres where a combined procedure with the neurosurgeons and the paediatric surgeon uh, would attempt to remove both the intra-abdominal and the intraspinal lesions at the same time or as stage procedures. Obviously, the risks are um, damage to the spinal cord and the nerve roots by performing surgery in that area. So, in neuroblastoma, do you believe that minimally invasive surgery has a role? I think that um, certainly for thoracic neuroblastomas, it has a role and um, it's actually favourable to a large thoracotomy, especially because in thoracic lesions, um, even if you have microscopic residual, the outcome is still very good. For localised, well-circumscribed adrenal lesions, one could argue the case. But then out beyond that, it's a matter of personal preference. There are some surgeons who think that they are technically capable of performing a um, complete vascular dissection and the way you would open. Um, and my personal preference, of course, for such extensive abdominal tumours would be that um, minimally invasive surgery does not have a role. Um, but that will have to be down to personal preference as long as the principles are maintained, as long as the tumour is excised, um, as, as well as, as long as as much macroscopic tumour resection as is possible open is performed using minimally invasive techniques, then that would be acceptable. So thank you so much for your time, Mr. Begoyer. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kate.